the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hope everybody had a good Halloween. Um, we uh, know we did. And we had so much fun doing the 40th anniversary of three movies. We <laughs> thought, man, we should keep this going. And Raiders of the Lost Ark hit its 40th anniversary. So we thought, well, that's a good one to pick. Um, such a classic movie. And we've had several emails of people asking, how come you guys haven't done you know this movie or that movie? And, and when we started the podcast, we said we were going to shy away from the big, big movies like Jaws or Star Wars, movies that have been talked about to death. But, you know, forget the fact that people really do enjoy listening to people talk about these classic movies that they love. So we decided, you know, we're going to start trying to get into some of those. So uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a good good starting point. So for those of you that uh, requested uh, Raiders, this one's for you. For you 20-somethings who apparently don't know who Indiana Jones is, I found that out today. I'm shocked and really dis- deeply disturbed by this. This is also for you because this is an entire franchise that is incredible and Raiders is my favorite. Speaking of movies that are old, it, you know, Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark is old, 40 years. It's an old movie. It's interesting, you know, I'll try not to like linger on this too much during this episode, but It is surprising to me how fresh this movie feels. All the movies that we do on this podcast are older movies, you know, most from the 80s or 90s. And some of them have a lot of age on them. You know, some of them feel really old where this one, uh, maybe it's a setting, a lot of it's the style of it, but it has like this sort of timeless feel to it. But so much to talk about with Raiders. Uh, Certainly we'll get into the relationship between Lucas and Spielberg. It's easy to forget that the Indiana Jones trilogy is such a big part of George Lucas. Um, you know, I I sometimes yeah. only associate George Lucas with Star Wars and think, oh, this guy only did a few movies and just didn't do anything <laughs> else. It's like, no, no, he came up with the whole idea for Indiana Jones and like got this whole thing rolling, even though I think it's more associated with Spielberg. So we'll get into the uh, infancy of the Indiana Jones idea and how Spielberg and uh, Lucas came together to create one of the most endearing and successful franchises in Hollywood history. And it might be a surprise to know that this film was kind of a hard sell to studios at the time. Uh, so we'll go into that. We'll talk about the production, the casting. There was a big surprise I found out and who Indiana Jones almost was. It's pretty fun. Post-production, the music, I mean, geez, Is there someone, even if you have never seen Indiana Jones, have you still heard the theme? I wonder. Such an anthem. It's just incredible. So we'll get into that. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot along the way that we talk about with Indiana Jones. And of course, the release reception and the legacy of. And for our picks of the week, we uh, did an equal splitting here of the co-stars of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I did Regarding Henry with Harrison Ford. And I did Starman with Karen Allen. Such a sensitive Carpenter movie. I really enjoy that one. Mm-hmm. And I revisited regarding Henry too. And man, that one that one hit me right at the end. I tell you. Yeah, very family oriented drama. It is. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from Raiders, 
Lindsay, can you give us a brief lowdown, your interpretation of what this movie is about? Set in the 1930s, a charismatic professor of archaeology who moonlights as a glorified grave robber finds himself caught up in the journey of a lifetime when he realizes a former girlfriend holds the key to finding a significantly important and supposedly lost religious relic, our hero, Indiana Jones, sets out to recover the Ark of the Covenant, which, as legend has it, holds the power of God. A global quest like this could be hard just by itself, but with Jones being trailed by Hitler's relentless Nazi minions who want to claim the Ark for themselves, this hair-raising adventure has Indy battling challenges at every turn. It really is, uh, like, nonstop. Constant. Adventure. Just, yeah. just totally constant. Those Nazis. Man, the ultimate evil. Yeah. Such a fun time for a movie that has a bunch of Nazis in it. You can't say that every day. Yeah. Well, let's go to our first clip from Raiders. We'll be back. We'll talk about it. Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Now I do. This is my place. Get out. Mohan, Temigaru, Bolianu. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but maybe we can help each other out now. I need one of the pieces your father collected. Bronze piece about this size with a hole in it off center with a crystal. You know the one I mean? Yeah, I know it. Where's Abner? Where's Abner? Abner's dead. Harry, I'm sorry. Do you know what you did to me in my life? I can only say I'm sorry so many times. <laughs> we'll say it again anyway. Sorry. Yeah, everybody's sorry. Abner was sorry for dragging me all over this earth looking for his little bits of junk. I'm sorry to still be here stuck in this dive. Everybody's sorry for something. It's a worthless bronze medallion, Marion. You gonna give it to me? Maybe. I don't know where it is. Well, maybe you could find it. 3,000 bucks. Well, that will get me back. But not in style. I can get you another two when we get to the States. It's important, Marion. Trust me. You know the piece I mean? You know where it is? <laughs> Come back tomorrow. Why? Because I said so, that's why. Ha! See you tomorrow, Indiana Jones. Now, the early makings of Raiders of the Lost Ark had some pretty humble beginnings. Spielberg and Lucas weren't quite the titans of Hollywood yet, but they had uh, some pretty big successes already under their belts. Uh, Spielberg made a huge hit with Jaws, which some people can say kind of kicked off this idea of the summer blockbuster. And Lucas made a pretty big splash with American Graffiti. It wasn't as big of a hit with Jaws, but it did well with critics. It was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. They had become filmmaking friends and buddies prior to their early successes, but soon their relationship would go from friends to collaborators when they would start working on films together. 
And it might surprise a lot of people to know that the idea for what would become Raiders of the Lost Ark came to Lucas a good 10 years prior to it ever actually coming to fruition. As a kid, Lucas had always been inspired by the Saturday serial um, stories on television that would be you follow this hero through this journey and then there's an eventual cliffhanger and then it continues to the next week. So these stories that were kind of fantastical and there was always like this great journey and just great storytelling is something that Lucas appreciated about these and so he was inspired by this idea and came up with these two kind of general ideas Um, one about a hero kind of a Flash Gordon type that would have these battles in space this battle of good and evil and also um, one about an archaeological adventurer who goes around finding these supernatural treasures. So he has these vague ideas, but doesn't really have the wherewithal at the time to work it out. So Lucas calls upon his writer-director friend, Phil Kaufman, and bounces these ideas off of him. Kaufman gets really excited about this archaeological adventurer story, and together he and Lucas sit down, and for about three or four weeks, they start working over the story a little bit, coming up with more of a structure. And it was actually Kaufman that came up with the whole idea of the hero going after the Ark of the Covenant, the supernatural treasure, that being the focus of this story. So as they're working on this story, around about 1975, Phil Kaufman gets tapped to direct the Clint Eastwood film, The Outlaw Josie Wales. And so he dips out. And without his help, Lucas thinks, okay, I'm going to put this idea back on the shelf. I'll come back to it later. I'm going to focus more on this other story that I have that would soon become what we know as Star Wars. So we fast forward, Lucas has completed Star Wars, but it hasn't been released yet. It's been a very, very uh, tough experience on George Lucas, and he doesn't know how the movie's going to perform, neither does the studio. So he needs to relax a little bit, and he decides to go on a vacation with his good pal Steven Spielberg, get away from Hollywood and and wait out and see what the uh, box office results are for Star Wars and keep their fingers crossed, hoping that this little movie he made is going to be successful. Didn't you tell me a story about how he showed Star Wars to a bunch of director friends, including Spielberg, and without special effects added it, and Spielberg was one of the only ones that was like, I can see it, this is going to be great. Yeah, a lot of his director friends, including uh, Brian De Palma, kind of bagged on Star Wars, but uh, (laughs) Spielberg said, this is going to be great, I can see the finished picture with all the special effects, and this is going to be an awesome movie, but... uh, Lucas's confidence, I think, was a little shot because it was a very rough shoot. And so they're on the beach and they're waiting for the um, results of Star Wars, which ended up being a huge hit, you know, a very big success, as we all know. Um, But while they're there, uh, George Lucas kind of takes the focus off of him and says, Steven, what are you working on? Or what, you know, what's your next project? Uh, Steven Spielberg hadn't quite released Close Encounters, but he had already shot it. And he said, you know, I really want to do a James Bond movie. At that time, the James Bond series was well on its way. Um, They had been putting one out about every two or three years. And, you know, it had been a successful franchise. And George Lucas said, wait, 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 I got that beat. I got a better idea that you should do. It's sort of like James Bond, but it's this archaeologist. And, you know, he's uh, it's based off of these serials, the ones that we used to watch when we were kids. And Spielberg is immediately excited about it. 
though at the time Lucas was calling it Indiana Smith and uh, Spielberg said, I love everything about it, but can we call him something different? And Lucas said, yeah, you know, come up with a name. So Spielberg settled on Indiana Jones. There it was kind of decided that that would, uh, what they would focus on, that would be the start of their partnership. And they would, uh, you know, try to figure out how they can make this happen, how they can uh, get this movie off the ground. There wasn't a script yet. You know, there was just this idea that, uh, Lucas had worked with with Kaufman years ago. So the first step was going to be, you know, let's get a hold of a writer to really flesh this out more. And Spielberg had someone in mind. He had recently purchased the script Continental Divide, which he would later be the executive producer on. Um, it stars John Belushi. It's a film that's well worth your time. Uh, it was written by Lawrence Kasdan, and that was the guy that Spielberg wanted to bring in on this project. He just thought that after reading that, that this was the man that they needed to bring in. So we introduced Kasdan to George Lucas, and together they thought, okay, this is a trio that's going to work. Let's Let's make this story happen. And so over the course of three days, these guys sat down for nine, ten hours a day with a tape recorder and just worked out the entire idea for what would become Raiders of the Lost Ark. George Lucas had the idea. Spielberg had ideas for different scenes and set pieces that wanted to be involved. And it was Kasdan's job to make all of this link together. And he was also the reason that there's a 30s vibe to this story, too. And you got to think about Lawrence Kasdan, uh, start of his career, writes uh, Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. What? In two years, yeah. he has uh, written two of the biggest, you know, blockbusters and not just biggest blockbusters for those times, but like two of the most well-known movies of yeah. all time. So He'd also write and direct Body Heat the same yeah. year, too. He hadn't been a hired writer yet until Spielberg talked to him. So like Raiders of the Lost Ark was technically his first being hired to write something, not just uh, selling a script. And for how big this movie would become, it's really difficult to believe that it was hard to sell the script. Lucas and Spielberg decided they wanted this to be a quick and dirty shoot. And they thought that with the inspiration of these old serials they grew up with, they wanted this movie to feel like that. And they really thought they could shoot this movie for $20 million. And no studio believed that they could make this movie for only $20 million. And the involvement of Steven Spielberg in this project was something that Lucas was not going to let go of. This was his creative partner. And at the time, studios were kind of not wanting to deal with Spielberg because 1941 was such a bomb. They thought, you know what, we don't want to take another chance on this guy. Was he just a flash in the pan with Jaws? 1941, I don't know, dude. But Lucas was not going to give him up. And he also wanted to have all creative control over Raiders, which was pretty high demand for that time. You really have to give Lucas credit here, um, and Spielberg for that matter. A lot of people can kind of knock these guys for being as Hollywood as it gets. But, you know, if you really look at the story of Spielberg and Lucas, Lucas learned a lot of things on Star Wars. Like, he learned how much control the studio has and they controlled they they controlled so many things that he wanted to do like he didn't get to do if we're going to make big movies in the future that are going to make a studio a bunch of money then we should have complete creative control and eventually you know Spielberg went on to start producing movies and allowed all these new up and coming younger directors to have complete creative control and he took care of the money part and you know he dealt with the studio eventually Spielberg made his own studio and Lucas started fu funding his own $100 million movies. I mean, these guys to me are the original kind of like, we want we want to do our art the way we want to do it. And because it costs so much money, they 
found a way to make something that was super successful, then take that money and have more control on their next movie until it got bigger and bigger. What they also accomplished with, you know, the the budget to Raiders of the Lost Ark was $20 million. And that's only six. I know it's a lot of money for 1980, but that's only $60 million in 2021. And you think of every Marvel movie I don't think any of these movies cost under $200 million anymore. The Indiana Jones trilogy, when you look at it, these still look like really big movies and the effects still hold up and they spent a lot of money on detail and being creative with camera tricks and models and stunts. And um, we'll get into that, but they really were, I think, real artists who really wanted to They had a vision and they wanted to have complete creative control and do it the way that they wanted it. And that was their big goal. You know, that was their end goal is to make the movies that they wanted to make. And they did it. You know, it's like they're as big of a film buddy filmmaking success story that you can think of of two friends that like both were on the same page for the movies that they wanted to make. And they were able to pull it off and, you know, not just make one, but make a handful that of these movies that, you know, have stood the test of time. All right, so shooting began in June of 1980 for Raiders of the Lost Ark. This was an intense 73-day shoot, shooting in places like France, Hawaii, Tunisia. That's where it was particularly intense, and also in England and Elstree Studios. But the major intensity would be in the, the desert scenes in Tunisia, which stands in for Egypt in Raiders. It was upwards of 130 degrees. They were shipping in, no lie, 5,000 gallons of water a day for cast and crew to just survive. And as you can imagine, there was some sickness too. There was uh, some dysentery going around on on this entire shoot. I think it was like Spielberg said he was the only one that didn't get sick on the whole shoot because he just ate all his food uh, out of cans for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, was he just thinking ahead or was he being a nerd? I don't know. I think know. he was thinking ahead. But I think he was. <laughs> I, yeah. Probably uh, Lucas gave him a heads up on yeah. shooting in other countries. Yeah. John Reese davies who plays Sala, oh, he sounds like he had a real rough time. He even said not only did he get dysentery, but he suspects cholera too. There was a scene that was cut out of the movie. I mean, understandably, after you hear this. But Spielberg said, I need you to do this particular pose so I can see your face. And with that, Reese bent over and he, man, he crapped his pants. No lie. In front of the entire crew. And he felt so terrible. He just didn't care. And Harrison Ford, too, when he got so sick with dysentery that it was physically challenging for him to finish scenes. For instance, the scene where he's supposed to have the sword battle with the guy that's all in black and obviously looks like he could kick Indy's ass. It's a scene that's beautifully played for humor. You know, the the old adage, what is it? Someone brought a gun to a knife fight. Well, that's what Indy does, and he just shoots the guy, and he goes down. I mean, it's, it's a hilarious scene. The whole reason for doing that was that Harrison Ford couldn't perform the scene as it was written, and so he suggested, what if I just bring out a gun and just shoot this guy and take care of it? I called my dad immediately after I found this out because it's one of my dad's favorite scenes in this movie, and he howled. He thought that that was just absolutely hilarious. I do love that one of the more memorable scenes in the movie uh, <laughs> happened because somebody was sick, and it's like, can we just shorten this scene by me me just shooting them? I mean, that scene never gets old, and Harrison Ford's reaction, knowing that he probably felt terrible, his reaction in that is even better. And if Harrison Ford wasn't taking enough abuse by getting sick in the scene where he's battling the shirtless Nazi and Marion is in the 
plane locked in and this plane is slowly spinning around Indy, the wheel on the plane rolled up Harrison Ford's leg and tore his ACL. And you know what that guy did? You know what that pro did? He just wrapped it up, put some ice on it, kept going. I don't even know what to say about that. I don't know how you do that. It seems like it's a real tough guy move. I don't know in <laughs> hindsight if that was like the best, yeah, just... uh, best you know, solution, but he was dedicated. He was like, we're going to finish filming. Harrison Ford, the strongest guy in cinema. Gosh. I think he gets he's gotten hurt on like multiple movies. Yeah. I think Temple of Doom was even worse. Yeah. And Harrison Ford has said this was like the physicality of the role. It was like very demanding. And, you know, you're listening to him talk about the movie. And it's like, man, you forget how many intense scenes there are in this movie. One of the best openings of a movie, in my opinion, Indiana Jones has his first obstacle where he's running from the ball and it almost crushes him. You know, and that's a scene too, where they built a like 20 foot gigantic boulder that was pretty heavy. It wasn't like, like 300 pounds, yeah, it was like crazy, you know, that they actually had rolled down a contraption. And that's Harrison Ford actually running away yeah. from that 300 pound ball. Why Raiders has aged so well, because Raiders is like the benchmark for having these big set pieces, having big action scenes in between story and dialogue. Um, it happens all the time in movies now, you know, but for 1981, this was a pretty creative way to take the audience on a thrill adventure ride, you know, where we open on excitement and then we calm down for a minute and, you know, he's teaching a class and then he gets some information and he gets an assignment and then boom, he's off, you know, going back to the beginning, Spielberg, much like he did with Jaws, preying on people's fear of animals and creepy animals like sharks, spiders, snakes, you know, they work that into the script The Indiana Jones, he's a badass, but the one thing that scares them is snakes. I think that's a pretty natural thing for most people to fear snakes and bugs and and spiders. And even in the beginning, you know, we get the scene where uh, early role by Alfred Molina, where he's got all the tarantulas on his back. And, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff, uh, the more we learn about behind the scenes of movies, not that I ever <laughs> wanted to be an actor, you know what I mean? But if I ever had that you know, in me where I was like, man, I really want to be in movies. And then like I showed up and like my, my first role was like, Hey man, we got to put all these like gigantic tarantulas on your back. And, uh, and they put all these tarantulas on my back and those tarantulas aren't moving around cause they're all male tarantulas. And so a spider wrangler <laughs> like, what we need to do is we need to put a female tarantula and then they'll all fight each other on your back. And we're going to, we're going to shoot that. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't, <laughs> sorry. I can't do this movie. Um, but that happened Alfred Molina. It was like one of his first uh, movies. He, he has a live gigantic tarantulas on his back. And the scene with all those snakes. Um, it was like we, somewhere around seven to 10,000 snakes. And yeah. they, they thought that they could do it with, you know, maybe a thousand yeah. or something. No. Nowadays, this would all be digital. All these snakes would be digital. They would The spiders would be digital. There's a behind-the-scenes documentary that shows a lot of footage of them shooting that snake sequence. And people are just like casual crew or just walking around. There's like thousands of snakes, and they're like lifting them up and moving them over and trying to get them off their feet. Everybody got pretty like comfortable with it. But then they were like, no, there's a scene with the cobras where a cobra like raises its head up. And, and uh, they were like, yeah, we're going to bring in real cobras that actually can kill you. And what they did was is they put up strong plexiglass in between Harrison Ford. They're shooting through the glass, so it looks like it's about to attack him, but he's protected, but not by much, just by glass in between him. And they said that like one of the Cobras was just like spraying venom and splashing on the glass. 
when I learned too in that snake sequence that actually the snakes were drawn to the warmth of the fire instead of being brandished off, you know, but like what they do in the scene and they were actually huddling towards the warmth. I'm like, okay, this is this has gotten way more terrifying. And seeing crew members walk around with handfuls, like not just like five snakes, like I don't know, 30 snakes all balled up and just like tossing them out. I just can't even imagine you would have to maybe disassociate a little bit or not be afraid of snakes. And we'll talk about the cast in our next discussion, but uh, I got to hand it to Karen Allen because, you know, uh, Indiana Jones has got like boots and all these uh, all this gear on and uh, she's wearing like no shoes, and like a dress, snakes like squirming around her feet. Yeah, I think Spielberg said that she was so freaked out a few times that he couldn't get a good scream out of her, that it was like a legit real scream from Karen Allen. And he said that he got one good scream out of her and he used that multiple times throughout that uh, because she was just too breathy because she was actually terrified, which I totally would be too. And what makes this movie so successful is all these intense action scenes. You know, Spielberg and Lucas know not to go lengthy, on these scenes, uh, Lucas has shown that in the Star Wars movies. Spielberg has shown it in Jaws and other movies. I think a lot of movies that uh, come out now could review these movies and think, hey, do we got to have an action scene be 20 minutes long? They get in, they give you what you need, and then they get out, and then you know we're getting more information about the characters or about the story. Another thing that really, I think, makes this movie so good is the injection of humor, you know, especially in these scenes that are scary, you know, with the snakes, uh, with the spiders. Spielberg... I think is inherently funny. He did 1941, which is his his stab at doing a full-on comedy. It didn't necessarily work. He finds ways to put humor into his movies so that we're thrilled, but we're also getting a laugh. He understands how to please an audience, you know, and sometimes to, that can be to a fault. And I think he gets criticized for being, you know, trying to please an audience or to manipulate an audience too much with his movies and with his music. And, but I think here he's hitting everything just right, you know, just a tad of humor, a nice action scene, um, a little bit of romance, great, big, huge set pieces, thrilling music. And really this movie to me, it, it encompasses why I like to sit down and watch movies. I know that there's hundreds and hundreds of movies I could watch instead of Raiders of the Lost Ark for the hundredth time that would challenge me more. You know what I mean? And I know there's smarter movies to, out there to watch, but I come back to these movies time and time again because there are filmmakers, I think Spielberg and Lucas are filmmakers, that they want you to have this experience. You know, they want to take you on this ride. It's not just a movie about understanding the human condition or something. You know, it's not a movie. And don't get me wrong. I love the movies we do like Taxi Driver that take us to the the deep, dark places of, of, of the human mind. But on a lot of levels, I just the I find comfort in these movies. There's a simplicity about it that's so endearing to me. We're cheering for Indiana Jones. Um, he's not an anti-hero. He's a hero. We want to join him for this ride because he is. It's not just a one-note character. There's a reason that Raiders of the Lost Ark and Romancing the Stone are two of my favorite movies. They're basically kind of the same type of story. I know you said something like, maybe it's not the most intelligent movie. The thing is, sometimes I don't want to sit down and watch something that's quote-unquote intelligent. I want to be entertained. I want to be taken away. And to criticize Lucas or Spielberg and say, you know, they're pandering to an audience... 
I would actually turn that around and say they're putting on a movie that they want to see. And I think that's what they would say, too. Sure, there's always a degree of manipulation through music and, and, and whatnot in stories. But what I love about Raiders is that it is meant to entertain. It's meant to make you squirm. And you were watching all of this safely from your couch. And you were getting to see this intense adventure that you're never going to see in your real life. Like, Indiana Jones doesn't exist. I'm fairly certain... Um, archaeologists don't like Indiana Jones. There was one time I was in my early 20s and met an archaeology student and I was, you know, 22 and dumb. And I said, what do you think of Indiana Jones? And she said without a smile, no one in archaeology respects Indiana Jones, but he's not a real guy. This is an intense, entertaining story. And that is the purpose of it. We're going to say it a million times in this episode, but like 40 years later, it holds up like a gem. All right, let's head on to that next clip. And then when we come back, we'll talk about the cast and the release of this movie. Hello! Why, Dr. Jones, whatever are you doing in such a nasty place? Why don't you come on down here? I'll show you. Thank you, my friend, but I think we are all very comfortable up here. That's right, isn't it? Yes, we are very comfortable up here. So once again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. What a fitting end to your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I'm afraid we must be going now, Dr. Jones. Our prize is awaited in Berlin. But I do not wish to leave you down in that awful place, all alone. Slimy pig, you let me go! Stop it! She's of no use to us. Only our mission for the Führer matters. I wonder sometimes, monsieur, if you have that clearly in mind. It was not to be, Sherry. You bastards! I'll get you for this! Indiana Jones? Adieu. <laughs> now, we usually get into casting with uh, each episode that we do, and... Whenever we're researching the movies for casting, there's always casting what ifs, you know, like mm-hmm. sometimes we, we, we've we talked about movies where they said every actor in Hollywood like auditioned for the role or was like considered for the role. And it's really tough with a movie like Indiana Jones because these are such iconic, you know, it is such an iconic franchise. It's very difficult for me now to like picture any face other than Harrison Ford's and any voice other than Harrison Ford's. It's kind of mind blowing that Harrison Ford, like at the time was not the front runner that they were going with another actor and that they actually didn't want Harrison Ford. Like George Lucas specifically said, Scorsese's doing this thing with Robert De Niro where he acts in all his movies and... Lucas said, you know, I already used Harrison Ford in American Graffiti. I already used him as 
Han Solo and he's going to be in the sequel to Star Wars. I just don't want to use him in every single movie that I'm associated with. So he was team, let's get a different actor than Harrison Ford. And Spielberg was like, no, I think we should use Harrison Ford. (laughs) I do love that. But Spielberg relented. And there were a few actors that were up that they mentioned that actually had made some way into it, like that being Peter Coyote, Tim Matheson. I could see Peter Coyote doing a very more like straightforward uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. I don't know what Tim Matheson would have done with it. Um, I mean, I get that he would have had the charming angle, but seeing him as an action hero, it doesn't, uh, doesn't compute for me. Yeah, me neither. But who the original front runner was, was Tom Selleck. And I can completely see it. And especially after watching some screen tests that he did with another front runner at the time, that being Sean Young. Um, that was also before Blade Runner. If I try really hard, I can see Tom Selleck pulling this off. And he did do a movie in the 90s called Quigley Down Under. I don't know if you ever saw that. I have seen that, yeah. And that I almost feel like that was them trying to do a what if... Tom Selleck got the Indiana Jones role and we had a much smaller budget and it was like more of a Western. He does have a more charming and humorous look and vibe about him that he has mastered really, really well. But I don't think that he has as much of the stoic everyday vibe that Harrison Ford brings to roles. Think what you will of me for liking this movie, but he did a movie called Runaway with Gene Simmons. I think that movie is terribly exciting. I love it. There's only a a twinge of humor in that movie, and I think that he pulls off being a sweaty cop action star in that movie really well. Uh, I can see him being Indiana Jones, but the seriousness would be taken out of it. Uh, as compared to Harrison Ford. And as we know, it didn't end up being Tom Selleck. So he was the front runner. Spielberg and Lucas had a contract with him ready to go. And the head of CBS heard about this and said, hold up a second. We've already got Selleck under contract and we've already greenlit this series called Magnum P.I. And with that, the show started and he was taken off of Raiders. And you could feel bad about uh, Tom Selleck um, if Magnum PI was just like a total, like uh, canceled, you know, series after like five episodes, but, uh, it actually became like this, like international, big, huge hit TV, number one hit TV show. So he made out all right on that deal. I think so. I watched that. Yeah. I think men grew mustaches because of Tom Selleck. My dad was often called, uh, Tom Selleck because of his mustache in the eighties. And, uh, I wonder would Tom Selleck have worn a mustache if he was in Indiana Jones? I feel like he would have. I mean, would that have been up to him? I think they would have told him to shave that so? thing off. Yeah, maybe so. Indy always had a five, a permanent a gruff, five o'clock yeah. shadow. Yeah. Maybe it just would have been that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's a, these, these are the questions we'll yeah, never have we'll answers never to. Yeah. We'll never know. So with Selleck off the project, Spielberg returns to, Hey, George, what about uh, old Harrison Ford? How about we give that another thought? So Lucas sends Harrison Ford the script and says, meet with Spielberg. Let's see how we feel about this. And Harrison Ford reads it and is completely excited about the story and really got along with Spielberg. He was a little reluctant to sign onto a movie that would set itself up for sequels, but not as reluctant as he was with Star Wars, evidently. So even with the thought of this in mind, he went ahead and signed on pretty much to a three-picture deal if this was going to work out. Yeah, it's interesting that he had uh, two characters where he knew he was going to do three movies. He spent like 
the 80s doing Indiana Jones and Han Solo. That's a commitment. I mean, I know we see a lot of that now. Like there's movies that are huge franchises that go to, you know, with all the Marvel stuff and Fast and the Furious. But um, back then, you know, it wasn't uh, such a a big thing to say, hey, I'm going to do three of these movies. Big commitments, not not just little movies, like movies that take like, you know, that's one one of his years all burned up on doing a Indiana Jones or a Star Wars movie. And if we can just uh, stop for a second, and this is Harrison Ford in the in the 80s here. Just one hit movie after another. And I know Blade Runner, I, I guess I won't just say just full on hits, but like these movies that people are still talking about today, movies that have become classics. 1980, he comes out with Empire Strikes Back. 81, Raiders of the Lost Ark. 1982, Blade Runner. 1983, Return of the Jedi. 1984, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's not until 1985 that he sort of like stretches his legs and tries some different roles with Witness, which was also a pretty big hit, and Mosquito Coast. Then in the late 80s, like has a huge hit with Working Girl and rounds out the 80s with uh, The Last Crusade. Kind of unheard of, but wow. I mean, just one after another. But what's what I find so unique about this period of Harrison Ford is that I don't really feel like there was like Harrison Ford fatigue because mm-hmm. all these movies that Harrison Ford was in were ensemble pieces, but not just that. They were like these big, huge, like storytelling pieces with action and special effects and all these big extravaganza type movies. And it wasn't just about like, this is a Harrison Ford vehicle. Harrison Ford was like distanced himself from being a Hollywood guy. Like he didn't do a lot of interviews. Harrison Ford in the eighties is something that could like never be replicated again. On the not having Harrison Ford fatigue tip, I think it's extra impressive too because he always stayed in the like crime or action or love interest genre. And it wasn't until 2000 when he was a villain and what lies beneath. I mean, to go that long in your career, pretty much like no one getting burnt out on the type of thing that you do and you do it so well to then have something that is slightly different than what you had been doing for like the last 20 years of your career. That's a good point. I was recently reading a thing about Billy Crystal and how Running Scared was like a modest hit, you know, and they were going to make a sequel to Running Scared. But then when Billy Crystal did When Harry Met Sally and that was a big hit, the studios were just like, oh, he's a romantic comedy guy now. Like we can't put him in any action movies or anything like that. And so he just kind of got stuck in that romantic comedy character, which is kind of odd because I don't really, you know, I would see him being more of an action buddy cop type, you know, role. But um, Harrison Ford never really, I don't think he ever suffered from that getting pigeonholed in, Um, one particular genre or like always having to play one particular character and I think what lies beneath was kind of awesome because you could see this guy that you got so used to seeing as like the good guy for forever and then you're like oh my god Harrison Ford's absolutely terrifying yeah I think it wasn't until like after 2000s where uh Harrison Ford was just like yeah I'm gonna play every character like super (laughs) grumpy I've been doing this forever yeah 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 (laughs) Now, Indiana Jones's counterpart in this movie is Marion Ravenwood, played by Karen Allen. And Karen Allen was coming at this role from a, a different aspect than Harrison Ford. She was a theater-trained actor and had to do some adapting to Harrison Ford's style. He was a little bit more stoic and private about his process, but the two really did 
bounce off each other really well. An interview I saw with Ford, he just was kind of beaming talking about working with her. It seemed like a really good groove that they had going on in this film, which you have to have if you're establishing that these two characters have this long history and this love affair and this immediate passion when seeing each other passion and anger and there's still love like there's a lot of intense emotions between these two and the fact that they continue on this adventure and see it all the way through to the very end and like i said before um Karen Allen wasn't the first one up for this role. As she said in an interview, pretty much every actress in Hollywood was up for this role, but Steven Spielberg always had his eye on her after seeing her in Animal House, where she's the moral center of the male-dominated madness that is that film. Spielberg loved the spunk and just fiery attitude that she brought to her audition, and she absolutely killed that screen test. The one that's featured on one of the special edition DVDs where she is screen testing with Tim Matheson. If you know the movie really well, you can see the way that she's doing the lines is different than in the film, but even the way that she's doing them there, you can see why Spielberg wanted her to come back for a second screen test. And she did. She did it with actor John Shea. The more and more that she did this, Spielberg was convinced each time. And she brought the 30s vibe so well to this role. And also, she tried really hard to make sure that the character of Marion wasn't just a damsel in distress and tried to bring as much resourcefulness to that character as she could. I got a little bit of the idea in the original writing of the story that Marion could have used a little bit more development. And that's what Karen Allen brought to this role. Even down to hearing the story about the infamous dress scene when she's with Belloc, one of her captors, and he asks her to put on a dress. Some people might look at this scene and say, why would Marion ever put on that dress? In the original version of the script, she puts it on without any hesitation, and Karen Allen had a total problem with that. She and actor Paul Freeman, who plays Belloc, worked that scene out, but she went to Spielberg and said, I feel like the character of Marion is being undermined here and give me the opportunity to work the scene out. And Spielberg was open to it. He said, okay, you guys figure this out, come back and show it to me. And if it works better, then we'll use that. And what you see in the movie is what Karen Allen and Paul came up with, that she didn't just put on the dress that Belloc asked her to. The whole idea of putting on the dress and hiding the knife, trying to drink Belloc under the table, but it backfires on her. All of that is within the character of Marion. And she wasn't just a kidnapped damsel in distress waiting to be rescued by Indy. She was going to escape no matter if Indy was coming for her or not. Yeah, I really love Karen Allen in this movie. Having watched all four of these Indiana Jones movies in the last few weeks, her character has aged the best as far as the female counterpart to Indiana Jones and all these movies. And I think her contributions to her character is what made her stronger. Temple of Doom obviously can be easily criticized with the Kate Capshaw, Willie character being kind of whiny and worried about her nails and kind of screaming through the whole thing and being the damsel in distress. In Last Crusade, which I think technically that movie feels like it's aged the best out of all these, but not when it comes to the female counterpart who is, uh, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Karen Allen's maybe only eight years younger than Harrison Ford. The female lead in Last Crusade is, I think, 22 
and she becomes the the romantic interest of Harrison Ford. And you're like, man, she's kind of young for Harrison Ford. Then you find out in the movie that she's actually Sean Connery's like love interest. That one hasn't really stood the test of Hollywood time. And to me, Karen Allen really is the best female lead in these Indiana Jones movies. And again, that can only be contributed to her um, not backing down and saying, hey, you know, can we can we give a little more uh, strength to this character? And uh, what a way to open a character, too, um, by drinking somebody under the table. Like, that's your introduction to Marion Ravenwood. You're absolutely right, Justin. And I believe that there was a reason that she was the female lead that was brought back for Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Clearly, she is the equal to Indiana Jones. She's his oldest companion that we know of. And the fourth one shows that 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 love that was there in Raiders has continued throughout and makes the most sense that these two are kind of uh, the same in a lot of ways. And what brought them together uh, before Raiders was even a movie in the, in the history of their relationship is the reason that they're meant to come back together in the fourth one. Well, Lindsay, I know we were going to talk about Crystal Skull later in this discussion, but should we, since you brought it up, should we just preemptively <laughs> talk about Crystal Skull for a second before we talk about Raiders a little bit more? Yeah, why not? I'm going to say something pretty controversial. I'm going to go on record. I don't care how much crap people want to talk on the fourth one. I don't think it's so bad. I think it's, if you're going to compare it to the first three, I think it's a little unreasonable to do that. It's about 20 years later. A lot of has changed since the last crusade. It is a completely fine Indiana Jones adventure story to me. You know, uh, you told me that before I rewatched uh, Crystal Skull, mm-hmm. and I, I remember you telling me that, and and I was thinking, uh, you know, I just sort of like politely like was like, oh, okay, that's an interesting, you know, viewpoint. And in my you head, also like Monster in Law too, yeah, Lindsay. And, and in my head, I was like, Lindsay's lost her damn mind. <laughs> but I'm gonna watch Chris. I was I hadn't really planned on <laughs> watching Crystal Skull, but you know, you always. Uh, say something like that. And I'm like, all right, man, I got to give this a look. And I honestly haven't seen Crystal Skull since it came out in theaters. And I was really put off by it. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the criticisms that people had about the movie when it came out, I agreed with at the time, but man, there's a real hatred for this movie. And so uh, after listening to you and kind of (laughs) looking up some of the real vile things people have like said about Crystal Skull, I rewatched it and really having some distance from that movie did it some justice. I think Watching it now, I don't have this, uh, I'm not comparing it so hard to the other movies. I can't defend it and say it's as good as the original trilogy because it's not. It's lacking a lot. And I think that's the distance between you see the 20 years. Like, I just don't feel like the gaps have been filled in with that movie of what Indiana Jones has been up to. But I do feel like it has all of the same beats that the other movies do. And they really went through some great lengths to make it look the same. I mean, Spielberg had been working with a new cinematographer for a while, and that cinematographer studied the other films and tried to make the the new movie look similar. And now that we have seen Harrison Ford is like a really old man, he doesn't really look that old in <laughs> Crystal Skull. So when I'm no. watching it, because I think my first thoughts when I first saw it was like, man, Indiana Jones is looking old and we didn't see him aging. You know, it was just like, he was looking pretty good in Last Crusade. (laughs) And now he's like looking older than Sean Connery did. But 
overall, you know, I did enjoy it. I do think that there's some thrilling moments in that movie and, uh, it's, it's really entertaining. And I think it fits within the canon of Indiana Jones. It's not as fun. It's not as creative as some of the other movies. And as much as I, the one thing that I didn't like about that movie, that I still don't like about it is uh, Shia LaBeouf. I just, uh, I don't buy him as like any sort of like young Indiana Jones. And I don't know. He's not the best part of that movie still, but overall it grew on me a little bit. It's a, it's a tough movie. I think in terms of like, you have three really solid movies that you could watch if you're going to sit down and watch an Indiana Jones movie. But I do think is a completist. It's worth kicking that one on. If you're, if you're going to go all, if you're going to go the whole nine yards with Indiana Jones, it's worth your time to, to go ahead and tack that on. If you're going to go for the the whole story, the whole uh, saga. That was just a long-winded way of me saying that I don't really hate the movie as much as I used to. (laughs) I think, if anything, what the fourth one does is it takes all of the love and everything that people have had towards the first three movies and put it in something that was was meant to just be an entertaining extension of of those three movies. 100%, the first three are superior to it. But I I really had no problem rewatching it, and I kind of want to watch them all in succession in a day. That would be really fun. But the fourth one, man, you know what? On record, any haters out there, I think y'all are just like stuck in the last crusade, bro. Like I don't know, it's not worth that much hate, really. But one thing that remained the same with that last uh, Indiana Jones was the music. And John Williams, it's, it's just insane how many iconic movies he scored. It's almost distracting at times because I'm like, hey, there's parts of this score that sound a little bit like Star Wars. And there's parts of this that, you know, have a little bit of Superman, you know, part of what he did in Superman. But they are distinct. And he has a way of making a theme to a character where immediately they're on screen whether it be a creature like jaws or superman or indiana jones or darth vader knowing that we need entrance music we need something a cue that signifies the importance of this character and his scores to these movies have become icons of themselves the theme music to this it is theatrical it is excessive it's over the top and it is meant to be anthemic and fun the indiana jones theme just feels like an adventure by itself and there are so many different crescendos and just different waves throughout the indiana jones theme by itself it's not to say that it's a one-trick pony that that's all that the music has going on we have the romantic theme that is a total contrast to the main theme and the romantic theme obviously comes up every time we have an important part with Marion. We also have the darker, more ominous theme. Whichever Nazi evil person is is pulling some shenanigans on screen, and we feel it. We also feel the haunting, like orchestral, big biblical something is brewing that's possibly not a good thing, whatever the Ark, or someone's talking about the legend of the Ark. There are all of these intense musical undercurrents throughout just writing the entire movie. It's not one of those things where you don't notice the score, that it affects you in that way. The score is meant to help your emotions the entire way through, and it, it, it makes the movie even better, I think. It's one of those that the score matters, and all it does is just emphasize how fun and all-engrossing this adventure story is supposed to be. 
you know, we talked about Crystal Skull a little bit. Um, we normally talk about sequels and stuff like in our discussions, but uh, these are such iconic sequels. It's, it's, you know, we could do an entire podcast on these and we probably will in the future talk about one of these movies, Temple of Doom or, or Last Crusade. You know, let us know if you guys enjoyed Raiders of the Lost Ark and you want us to do uh, one of the sequels, um, let us know, send us an email. But uh, to kind of round things out here, it's no secret, no surprise, Raiders of the Lost Ark was a massive hit, broke box office records, was a number one movie in 1981, solidified Steven Spielberg, as people know him today, like he became the name. One of the few directors where it was like, it's a Steven Spielberg film, oh, we gotta go, you know, it's, it's gonna be an event. He became like hand in hand with the event movie, and he continued to do that for, you know, decades where... It was like a summer release. It's a new Steven Spielberg blockbuster movies coming out, whether it be, you know, E.T., Jurassic Park, what have you. One interesting thing about the release of Raiders of the Lost Ark was a lot of movies we talk about became big on VHS or they became big on cable television. Well, this movie broke box office records. It was a huge hit right out of the gate, but it actually broke box office records as far as being the first VHS that sold like a million copies. And uh, when this movie was released, it was around 1983, this movie came out on VHS. And at that point in time, VHS was well on its way. Like people were, you know, there weren't blockbusters yet, but people were going and uh, rentals became a big thing. And they weren't really made for retail sale yet though. Like most people, you know, VHSs were like $100. Raiders was one of the first VHSs, which retailed for $39.99 which still seems pretty insane, but it was cheaper than any other VHS. And it became a huge hit. Like it kind of paved the way for studios saying, Hey, we can make a lot of money selling these VHS tapes, not just renting them. So, um, yeah, it sold a a million copies by 1985, which is kind of wild. And, uh, that only helped out the sequels because, uh, you know, people were like pumped up watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, it kind of kept, it kind of kept, uh, the franchise in the forefront there in people's minds. I couldn't even begin to count how many times I've watched this on home video, whether it was one that my family owned or it was at somebody's house. It was the go-to movie. I don't think I owned an original VHS until like 1989. We just never had the money to buy. I mean, I had like stacks of the three recorded off TV movies on one VHS tape, but I think, uh, 1989 for Christmas, I was gifted a copy of uh, Batman 1989. And uh, I think soon following that, I got copies of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Pretty Woman. And these were like in rotation. Um, I would have loved a copy of uh, Raiders, but I think at at that time, I probably had multiple tapes of them all on, you know, handwritten on the tape or whatever. My mom used to keep a card catalog and like would put stickers that they were uh different i'm not going to go through how she categorized them but i kind of have the same thing still um, in my adult life but star wars and raiders of the lost ark were two of the like first of the the store-bought tapes that were in there that's awesome Mm -hmm. well we'll stop there we'll uh, come back for some final thoughts on raiders of the lost ark but let's get into our picks of the week my pick was uh, mike nichols regarding henry and your pick was Karen Allen and Starman, which I watched not too long ago, and I really was really digging on that movie. What can you tell me about that? 
Starman is the redheaded stepchild of John Carpenter, but by no means is it inferior compared to many of his beloved horror films. I do think a movie like this is a far cry from movies that are made today, another genre bender for this podcast, but that's just one reason it's so special. Starman shows us Carpenter's sensitive side while still retaining his unique sense of storytelling and gravitating towards transporting audiences into another world. This isn't an E.T. ripoff, though there were plenty of people that were concerned that it would be. Starman is an adult drama about an alien crash landing to Earth and assuming the very identical look of a grieving widow's husband. The alien we come to know as Scott was shot down by the U.S. government and now needs Jenny, the widowed wife, to take him halfway across the country in order to meet his ship that'll take him back home. Above all else, this is a science fiction movie, and if that's not your bag, throw in a road trip and a romance for good measure. But the romance is not about falling in love. Instead, it's the longing for a partner who has passed, yet you're still seeing them right in front of you. It's an absolutely gutting feeling while halfway fulfilling at the same time. Most folks of a certain age know Jeff Bridges only as the dude from The Big Lebowski, but the man has always been one step above. He really is nothing short of phenomenal in Starman. I'd put him up there with Jodie Foster as Nell and Charlize Theron in Monster as far as like a transformation in character because Bridges stays completely on without wavering or becoming a parody, cliche, ever appearing robotic and never venturing into cringeworthy territory. He truly feels like a blank slate learning human behavior. And you know, this isn't an uncommon archetype in film, of course, but one could say it might be easier to play a role like this for laughs versus how Bridges must convince an audience he really is an alien in a skin suit. Karen Allen's performance is very earnest, and her ability to evoke such heartache throughout the picture is a feat by itself. Never does this tire in her character, and that is truly due to Allen's commitment to the role. We watch Jenny believably evolve, flawlessly and probably how any strong yet broken woman would. Alan provides the audience a window into experiencing this anomalous situation, and we can never stop feeling all of her emotions. Carpenter's final shot of the film is a slow pan upon her face. Over the film's beautiful score, Jenny is just taking in everything that's happened to her throughout the movie, and I can't tell you how this makes crocodile tears stream down my face. For Carpenter fans, Starman has an unmistakable look like many of his films, especially The Thing. He returns to using specific color schemes, in this case deep blues and various shades of red and outdoor lighting. POV moments and vast landscapes establish us on this emotional, earthly journey about something otherworldly. His trademark musical preference is also all over this picture and cements the mysterious, lovelorn tone. In trusting Jack Nietzsche with this score, you're filled with moments of intense emotion, inspiring, breathy synthesizers textured and pulsing at the same time with a minorly somber tone. More ominously thematic, these single note elements are brought to the forefront whenever the menacing government gets closer and closer to the fleeing Jenny and Scott. Tingling at times, this score is one that undoubtedly manipulates and guides the audience throughout the picture. This film deals with longing, heartache, moving on, and all while on the road, a journey in every sense. Starman feels like a film that is too empathetic and kind to be made today, too much heart, while also being a really dang good movie. For Jenny, the very existence of a replica of her husband, whom she knows she'll eventually have to part with, this gives her a chance to actually say goodbye to her husband, even if this isn't the real Scott. It's devastating and cathartic at the same time. While watching Starman, you do have to give yourself over to this world because the story wants you to become enveloped. 
Starman is a mature addition to Carpenter's legacy, and he does include some special effects like watching an infant rapidly go through the stages of growth until he reaches adult size. Um, There's a few explosions, various visual effects, but there's not much need to go over the top in the effects department. It's obvious that Carpenter felt the story was supposed to capture the audience. Starman certainly paints humans as the aggressor versus the visitors from space. It's a compassionate film and probably very surprising to come from Carpenter at the time. So definitely check it out, but be willing to give yourself over to this atmospheric world that Carpenter wanted to create. Every time I see Starman, I always kind of wish that Carpenter would have attempted at least one more sensitive-natured movie. Yeah. Even though I love it when he does his rough-and-tumble movies. Totally. But it is nice to know that the guy can really cross any, any type of genre and always throw in his special kind of flavor. All right, Justin, it's your turn. Time to tell me about your pick of the week. Well, it wasn't until I was just now listening to you talk about Starman that I realized what I like about Harrison Ford's performance in regarding Henry is that he plays it a lot like Jeff Bridges does in Starman. The story to regarding Henry is pretty simple. Uh, Harrison Ford starts out as somewhat of a stereotypical hotshot lawyer who is slightly corrupt, but generally always wins his cases by doing whatever he has to do. He's a total workaholic and uh, is totally not dependent on his family whatsoever. His wife, played by Annette Benning, and his daughter are simply part of the package. Um, they're there, but he doesn't offer them the kind of time and care that uh, he should. He seems to be buried in his work all the time, and that seems to be his top priority. This is all set up early in the movie, but immediately things change when Henry is shot getting cigarettes at a liquor store. It causes um, permanent brain damage. He has to basically relearn to walk. He has to relearn to talk. Now he's completely dependent on his family, and you know his work doesn't really deem him though they're trying to help him out along the way they know that he's never going to be the same and he's not going to be you know a shark for them like he used to be so they sort of look down on him now and that plays out later in the movie like you know he sort of feels isolated from his friends and and everybody and he doesn't really remember his life before um he doesn't remember his kid his wife and how he interacted with them. This is a movie about emotions. This is a movie about characters going through change. This is a movie I think that you don't really see anymore, at least in the theaters, you know, a high budget movie with high caliber actors and a really sensitive story. I can see criticisms of this movie um, saying that it's too saccharine. And at times I really think it it, it totes a really fine line, but I think Mike Nichols, the director, reigns it in. Um, he's known for adult drama, and he knows how to take the story in places that uh, keep us entertained, but at the same time doesn't make it so cheesy that we, you know, can't connect to the characters. The script was surprisingly written by a 23-year-old J.J. Abrams. It was like one of his first few Uh, movie scripts you know watching the movie i find that i can tell that it was written by someone really young but this because it the way things wrap up so neatly and that could be a criticism of it but it's a it is a feel-good movie and you kind of want something you kind of want to feel good after watching someone go through therapy sessions and relearn to uh, put their life back together the movie does have a moral lesson you know of value the things that we have look at the people who love us evaluate our lives you know are we overworked our, our hearts in the right places um it and the and the fact that it's never too late to change 
And uh, going back to the Jeff Bridges, Harrison Ford comparison, this is a, a movie like this is totally going to hinge on the performance of the main actor and how they're going to play it. And, you know, Harrison Ford could have went the Robert De Niro Awakenings route or um, other movies that have been mocked, you know, for a character who's like dealing with some sort of like brain damage and they're playing a character kind of like over the top. And Harrison Ford really just reigns it in. He he plays it like someone like Jeff Bridges, who's like, you know, an alien to the world and is trying to figure things out and just looks at everything like one moment at a time and like tries to assess the situation and thinks in practical ways. And I think it keeps the movie flowing really well and it keeps you on Harrison Ford's side and it doesn't, there's really no like cringy moments in this movie. I think it's really a... Uh, well-crafted, great adult drama. And again, something that I don't really think is made too often now. So uh, it was actually really nice to sit down and enjoy something like this. So highly recommend it. Mike Nichols regarding Henry. I really liked rewatching this movie. I'm glad you chose to do it for your pick this time. I love a good feel-good movie, but you are right. I hadn't even thought about the fact that a movie like that doesn't occur anymore or... I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it does, but it's not as it's more gritty and depressing and that sort of thing. But there's something to be said for a movie that has a nicely wrapped up ending that's that's satisfying, not like the happiest in the world, but satisfying. And you went through a journey and it wasn't necessarily dragging your heart through the complete ringer the entire time yeah and the only thing that takes me out of the movie for a moment is that uh, harrison ford is shot by young john leguizamo yeah so you're immediately like (laughs) hey it's john leguizamo like in this little tiny bit part but then once harrison ford gets shot he plays the scene so realistically and you kind of forget that that john leguizamo just shot him dude you saying that just brought back that scene to me it just gave me chills because he is really good in it yeah yeah, the way the way he plays it is is perfect. You're like, was he shot? He doesn't know that he's shot. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your pick of the week, Justin. You as well. Uh, those are picks regarding Henry and Starman. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. Sure, I need a long, slow canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Well, if you ever heard the rumors that Billy was once considered for Indiana Jones, I'm here to say I can't confirm or disprove this. The most I can say is that I have heard Bill say he has no recollection of being asked to play the role, but there is a little bit of evidence out there that Spielberg does have some fondness for this particular Murray brother. Instead, I'm going for something that Bill Murray and Indiana Jones fans might expect for this Murray moment. I've brought up Scrooge in at least 
two previous Murray moments, but never really focused on Karen Allen's experience of working with Bill. Throughout her career, Karen's looked for parts where a woman's role was not defined by her male counterpart, and she's done a really good job of that. Often she grounds her male co-stars, but exists independently of them. And this was a hard principle to stick with, I mean, even now, just because of how the Hollywood structure is for women. For background, in Scrooged, Karen's character of Claire is idealized, a woman who wasn't held back by the heartache caused by her former partner Frank, played by Bill, but she never really let that flame die, and vice versa. As we said earlier, Karen began her career in theater, where the written word is gospel. In an interview with Sci-Fi Wire, Karen said, When I started working in film, I followed the same rules as theater and felt there was often the same expectation. You come in every day knowing the scene, knowing your lines. Working with Bill, she continued, Well, he comes from a much more improvisational background, and comedians, the thing that sparks them and makes them really feel the most alive and vital in a role is very different. As previous Murray moments have taught us, Bill honed his acting chops through improv and not necessarily sticking to the script. So how did two actors like Billy and Karen work together? Two different schools of thought in the same film where they're supposed to have a very impactful relationship. Well, the short answer is Karen had to adapt. And if you remember in a previous Murray moment, Sigourney Weaver also had to loosen up on her theater skills for working with Billy and Ghostbusters. Although they'd met a few years before, in order to have such a familiar simpatico, Karen and Billy sorted out their stylistic differences. And when Karen came in for her audition with Bill and director Richard Donner, the script was not the main focus. We just did improvisations in an office, Karen said. We kind of just played around, and I think Bill was looking for somebody that he could be fun and easy with, and it probably came down to the fact that we felt really comfortable with each other. Working with Dick Donner was an absolute pleasure, according to Karen. And with Bill, she called it a, quote, horse of a different color. Donner, before his recent passing, had gone on the record a few times echoing Karen's words, but with a little bit of a sassier tone. A director working with an improviser is a whole other ballgame than it is with someone like Karen, who looked at this as a learning experience. He's constantly searching for a way to make it funny, the most alive and the most spontaneous, she said. For him to step into a script that's been written, you're always going to have to find that medium ground where he can be allowed to use what's been written as just a springboard. Karen found Bill's style to be unfamiliar, but yet a freeing experience to view the script as a beginning point to expound upon the narrative. It really was a beautiful opportunity to come to a film and work with someone like Bill Murray, who is an extraordinary improviser and yet also very much respected the script. But we had to find that fine line. Now, Bill was also dependent upon her in every way to keep it steady and be able to play off of him. Even the smallest improvised moments like Frank playing with Claire's coat in one scene, these tiny additions mattered in order to deepen their relationship without words. And knowing a lot between them was unscripted, this only proved how in tune they were with each other. Karen and Bill worked out scenes together until they flowed better than on the page could have ever communicated. Karen also had a front row seat to one of the most iconic scenes from Scrooge, the finale in which Bill directly addresses the viewing audience. I remember shooting that scene at the end, Karen said. I don't remember what was written or how different it was from what we ended up with, but it had a sense of him just completely improvising, and he did it again and again and again. It went off in different directions every time, and I can imagine the writers with their jaws dropped, just not knowing where he was going with it. And in fact, both writers, Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donohue, were friends with Bill, but they both had no idea what he was doing. Glazer, who rolls with the flow more easily than O'Donohue ever did, he thought Bill was really having a breakdown in front of the camera. O'Donohue, on the other hand, thought it was self-indulgent and was left very unimpressed, to say the least. 
And I'd be curious if Michael were still around, if he ever mellowed on feeling like that, because that scene makes Niagara Falls start to flow in for so many. But Michael O'Donoghue was pretty uh, staunch in, in his opinions in his day. It's the ending of the film, Karen said. They gave it so much thought, so much of their passion. It must be a very tricky thing to deal with when you're working with someone as brilliant as Bill. And I've mentioned this before, but Bill also lobbied for more of Scrooge to involve Claire and Frank's relationship, which is so cool considering the source material. If you've ever read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Claire and Scrooge was named after Bell in the novel, who fell for the promising young Ebenezer before he became a total curmudgeon. His true love became only about money. Thus, Bell breaks off their engagement and we barely hear from her again. Though the ghost of Christmas past makes Ebenezer face this, Belle is not revisited. So that Claire has a much larger role in this story only serves to enrich the entire movie. And we have Bill and Karen to thank for that. The entire history and making of Scrooge never ceases to fascinate me, hence why we've had a few Murray moments mentioning it, and there'll probably be another one that pops up. It'll always be Sigourney and Karen who I think are the best female counterparts to Billy. Maybe it's because they come from different backgrounds or maybe it's just chemistry. But with the holiday season approaching, keep Karen's musings of working with Bill in mind the next time you're in the mood to be Scrooged. You know, as many times as you've mentioned Scrooge on this podcast, I still haven't rewatched it since we've been doing this podcast. Really? Yes. Wow. I know holiday movies or Christmas movies aren't really your bag. I don't mind them. I get into it. You know, I'm like, it's in mm-hmm. December and then for some reason Scrooge, it's always because uh, I, in my mind, it's so mean spirited. <laughs> and so I'm not quite ready for that, but I'm, I'm going to do it this year. I'm yeah. going, I'm going for it. I'm going to do it next month. No surprise. It's it's my number one Christmas movie. I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Um, before we close out, Raiders, did you have any final thoughts on uh, Indiana Jones? I do. I have one little fun fact, and I can't believe we didn't say this earlier. You brought up that Indiana Jones was originally Indiana Smith. And thank God for Jones because it's way catchier than Indiana Smith. But we didn't say where Indiana came from. And in fact, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, if uh, you hardcore fans out there remember Sean Connery saying, we named the dog Indiana. Um, Actually, that was George Lucas's dog's name was Indiana. And that's where... The name came from, and actually the same dog, an Alaskan Malamute, uh, was the inspiration for Chewbacca in Star Wars. I love that his dog inspired so many Amazing, right? characters in his movies. I know. So many dogs all over this podcast. Rick Baker was inspired an American werewolf in London to have uh, the wolf look like his dog. Uh, but I do love that Indiana really is named after the dog. Yeah, I gla- I'm glad that they squeezed that into the movie. It's pretty cute. What about you? Any final thoughts? Uh, You had a quick little thought, not so much on uh, Raiders itself, but um, it was like five or six years ago, I went to Webster University to see a documentary called Raiders! The Story of the Greatest Fan Film Ever Made. And it's a documentary about these uh, three kids who lived in like Mississippi and they loved Raiders of the Lost Ark. So for seven years, it was like seven summers they made basically like a shot for shot remake on VHS and got pretty inventive and pretty creative. And they finally completed this thing. And I guess it got, you know, the story got picked up and eventually like Spielberg saw it. And the documentary has a lot of interviews, you know, interviews, the kids, it talks about the making of it has interviews with a lot of other directors. And it's a really inspiring story. If you can track it down, 
Um, I think part of it's on YouTube possibly. Um, but, uh, it's really wild watching it. Um, it was kind of cool because, uh, when I went and saw it, they showed the documentary and then we watched the, the actual movie that they made and it's kind of wild. I mean, the scenes with the fire and they actually got like a submarine and wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty creative, but it's also funny too, because they start out really young and then they start aging. <laughs> like, you know, over the seven years they have a growth spurt. So you kind of see these kids, uh, like totally change their features and like get taller throughout the uh, movie. So there's a lot of hilarious things in it. And it's, uh, just it's one of those things that you you hear about and you see and it it's as inspiring as you think it would be it's pretty interesting you know the dedication and having passion and love for something and saying you know doesn't matter we're just we're going for it we have this goal and we're going to get it done even if it takes us like seven years i can completely respect something like that that takes some real love and heart behind it i really need to track that down it's a good one uh definitely something that should be seen is that going to wrap it up on Raiders? Yeah, I think that's it. We hope you've enjoyed our episode on Raiders of the Lost Ark. We do have one more episode left before the year is up, and then we're going to take probably about a five-week break over the holidays and kind of recharge and uh, get our wits back about us and prepare for 2022, <laughs> whatever might happen then. Yeah. And uh, But we do have one more episode. We're going to close the year out with the uh, sometimes uplifting, sometimes not Shawshank Redemption. Depending on your mood. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of popular movies this year, uh, probably more so than other years. Yes. Uh, Shawshank Redemption is like the number one top movie on IMDb. It's ranked the highest of all movies. I'm really curious how many people are going to tune in for for this one. It's a really great movie. Just did a, a recent rewatch, kind of priming myself uh, to start doing research, and it holds up. It's one you just get sucked into. It's on TNT and you're like, well, I'm just going to sit down here for a couple minutes and watch a little bit of Shawshank. Yeah. So we've got that coming up. If you don't already, please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. We're on Instagram as Don't Push Pause Podcast. If you want to check out old episodes, you can always go to our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. We have everything archived there as well as a store, a bunch of merch that have our logo on it, our name. If you are a fan and a listener, uh, please visit our store, buy some stuff. All the money goes back into the podcast to help fund things and pay for things. And if you want to contact us for any reason whatsoever, you can always reach us at Don't Push Pause Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.